Welcome to the 86th installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. In the 85th installment of Ear to the Ground, we began a series of podcasts featuring a presentation on decision-making given by organic farming pioneer Atina Diffley during a recent session of LSP's Farm Beginnings course. In this second installment of Diffley's presentation, she talks about how collecting information is a key part of good decision-making on the farm. So I mentioned that in the winter, Martin and I would do this um, big planning session. And it, we did a whole day or two of information collecting. And it's a little bit like nonprofits actually do. And I've served on nonprofit boards, they do some of these kind of things. But we really wanted to be making our decisions from a base of information of things that we believe to be true and that were going to affect us. So some of the kinds of information we would collect would be, we'd write down a list of trends, you know, just a general direction in which things are, are moving, things that we believe are happening. Um, a local, the local trend has been around a long time, but it's really pretty recent that it's had the buzz it's had. And so that would be an example of something that we might have written down. Um, when heirloom tomatoes started to be popular, we've never grown heirloom tomatoes, so we saw that they're being popular. We see trade magazines starting to get a lot of articles about them. They're in stores. The seeds are being pushed by the seed catalogs. So we took a look at that. This is a trend. Heirlooms are becoming more popular. We put it down as a trend because we're tomato producers. So we recognize this trend is going to affect us because if we don't grow them and someone else does and they sell them into our market, we're going to have a smaller piece of the tomato market. Okay, so we have to decide whether or not we're going to grow them. So we want to be aware of those sorts of trends. When salad mix came around, we saw that one coming because it was coming out of California. They were getting $12 to $15 a pound for it. It's about $3 a pound now. Um, and there was an article in every single vegetable magazine in the world. Had an article about making $200,000 on an acre of land growing salad mix. And we looked at it and we said, well, it is $15 a pound right now, but it ain't going to stay there. Not with this many articles and everybody thinking they're going to make $100,000. And we just said, we don't want to go there. And within two years, it was down to five, and then it kept collapsing. So collecting those trends is really good. Um, and understanding your niche is really valuable unless you're, the smaller you are and the less acres you have, the more your niche has to be a high value to make the most of your dollars. If, and your labor if you're small. Um, so identifying that niche, another term you can think about which makes people uncomfortable, but once they start to understand the term, then they see it's really a valuable concept, is this term competitive advantage. And what that means is how you're different from and better than your peers. And the reason I really like to talk about competitive advantage is the organic community is different than the conventional community in their attitude about competition. Because the organic community is values driven. And since the very start, people have been very generous with information. So if you go to an organic farming conference, people are really happy. And you stop and talk to someone in the hall, they'll pretty much tell you anything. Whereas if you go to the St. Paul Farmers Market and go up some, just any guy there and say, hey, what cultivar is that? That's a beautiful cob of corn. They'll probably tell you a lie. They'll probably tell you something it's not. So it's a very different attitude and a very different spirit. So people have generally been very friendly with information. I've often given off information for nothing 
and then that person has the ability to compete with me in my market. Okay? Because I'm value-driven, because the movement is value-driven, we actually want to make this movement grow. We want more organic farmers. That's how most of us feel. So they get uncomfortable with this concept of competition. And so if you define it as how you're different from better than your peers, it really helps you find where you can really excel. And that's part of the understanding that those components of your farm and all these different parts of who you are, your business, your land, and your people, if, for example, when we moved to our new farm, <coughs> a very sandy farm to a, a farm with much higher clay contents, holds nutrients much better, holds water much better. We went through a whole um, change in what crops we grew because we had different land in a different environment. And so that was part of our niche and was part of our competitive advantage. Because of the type of soil we had, if I compared our new farm with our old farm as if they're two different people, that new farm was much more competitive. We had a competitive advantage on growing a crop like broccoli compared to a farmer who had been farming that old farm. So we really tried to find where we are different so we're not necessarily banging into the other people in the market and where we can really excel. And then you find the market's a whole lot bigger because you're not bumping into each other and competing in that sort of way, but you're finding your real niche and where you can really excel. Um, assumptions we're going to actually talk more in depth about. This is something else we always collect. Um, but they're beliefs we have about the issues about the world. And these beliefs are really important because we make a lot of decisions based upon them. And a lot of times if we don't write down what we believe, we don't question what we believe. And what we believe might not be very accurate, but we make our decisions upon it. So just asking yourselves, what do you believe about the world in relationship to what you're doing um, can be really valuable. You might find it's true, or you might find it's not true. Or you might find um, that one of our beliefs was that if we're frugal, it's going to help us become successful. And we would actually have these written down, and we would discuss it. Is this true? Because as our farm matured, our needs changed. And we had to make different decisions. And if we just kept believing we could be really frugal if we want to be successful, we would have actually started making really bad decisions. Because what was important changed. And that was a really important rule and belief system when we were really small. The market was really small. And we had to be really, really careful. But then later, it would have really hindered our growth if we had really latched onto that. So you have to have that kind of flexibility. And this can be one way of kind of challenging yourself. Because it's really easy as human beings, we, we adopt patterns just because it's easier to operate if you kind of know what you're going to do next. And you've got to shake up those patterns a little and bust them up. Um, and then we always recognize that we had guiding philosophies. How are these different than beliefs? Um, I think they're a little broader. Like, they're partly about values. Soil building was a, a guiding philosophy for us. It was more important that we build our soil than make money. We wanted to make money, don't get me wrong. We wanted to make a lot of money. But soil building was really, really important. Um, a philosophy of ours, I discussed this with another grower once to recognize it. I didn't realize I had this philosophy until I met someone with the opposite philosophy, which was I wanted to meet my buyer's needs completely, from as early as possible to as late as possible. And I never, ever wanted to say to them, I'm sorry, I don't have it. I wanted to just say, what do you want? Not, I can give you this much. So that was a driving philosophy for me. So I made decisions based on that philosophy. So we would overproduce about 15 to 20%. So 
so that we wouldn't be in the position where we could have to say we don't have enough. If it's cold, things are maturing slowly, we have this surplus. The other farmer who had a different philosophy was he never wanted to waste product. So he grew really tight numbers because he didn't have much land, and so he sometimes shorted his buyers. We had really different philosophies. Um, we didn't want to waste opportunity. We didn't want to waste product. Is one right or one wrong? I don't really think so. I think it's really based on who you are and what you have for land and people and business and what resources you're pulling and how that's all fitting together. Um, so filters, in a sense, when you're making a decision, they're moving through filters as far as the level of consciousness you have on those decisions. I showed you that last chart of some of those things that we want to have defined for ourselves and our business. Our decisions, in a sense, filter through those, through what is our niche, through what is our guiding philosophies, um, and have to fall right through that. So that's really important to have that role. So I want to talk about emotions and decisions a little bit because human beings are emotional creatures, and you should be emotional, and that's all part of who we are. Um, but they're lousy decision makers. You don't want your emotions to make your decisions. And I was thinking on, about that on the way here, that right from the start, when Nick asked me if I would do this workshop today, I allowed my emotions to make that decision. Because I knew I had a conflict. I had an all-day meeting, board meeting today, and I knew I was going to have to leave that meeting early to come to this. So right away, I was choosing between two events. And I knew I really shouldn't have said I'm going to do this. So I really should have said, you know, I got this other obligation. I'm sorry. But I really wanted to do this. I really wanted to meet you guys, and I really liked doing this. So I was letting these emotions make this decision for me. And I said, well, I'll just leave that board meeting early, and that's OK. Um, and then coming here, I kept having to, my emotions kept coming in, because part of me kept saying, well, it's snowing, this is sort of stupid, I'm driving 30 miles an hour right now. I'm even going to get there for the class over. So you can see how these emotions <laughs> come in there. And what I really like to suggest you do is to notice the emotion, first of all. Just really notice it and allow it. Totally allow those emotions to be there. And consult <coughs> you know. And so if I had used that when I was making a decision whether I'm going to come here today, I would have said, wow, I really want to be there. And just notice that I really, really want to do that. And then what I like to do is take the emotion out. OK, so if the emotion I really want to do it, here's the facts. I've got to be at this board meeting, and then I'd have to drive over to St. Cloud for a two and a half hour drive, weather permitting. Um, <laughs> Take the emotion out, that doesn't matter to me if I do it or not, the emotions I really, really want to, what would I decide? And it doesn't mean you don't bring emotion back in again and recheck the question, but sometimes you find you get a really different answer when you take that emotion out. You can put it back in and see what the question answer looks like then. But you don't necessarily want to allow it to make the decision. And one of the things I've noticed about emotions is they can be really hard to recognize that they're there, they're really sneaky. You know, they can kind of implant themselves, and you think you're being really rational, but you're maybe not. And usually your partner recognizes that you're not, um, but you don't recognize that you're not. Um, so one of the ways I can help recognize it for myself is that emotion tends to be in like a wave. It, it gets intense and it backs off, and intense and it backs off. And thinking doesn't do that. If it's thinking that you're doing, because it can be really hard to tell the difference between emotion and thinking. And thinking is just a much steadier process. You don't come on and off as much. So if you're like changing your mind back and forth, or it feels really intense and then it feels less intense, it's emotion and you just really want to consult with it 
and kind of figure out what it is. Now, intuition is really different than emotion. And I am all about intuition. I have never had a situation where I ignored my intuition that I did not later regret it. My intuition has never been wrong. But how do you tell the difference between intuition and emotion? Um, I don't really have a definition for that, so maybe we'll come up with that. I can feel it in myself. It's in a different part of my body. For more information on Farm Beginnings, see www.farmbeginnings.org. That's farmbeginnings.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. Thank you.